In this episode, we'll talk about prescription drug ID. We'll talk about how to use internet resources, narc pouch testing, and other investigative techniques to help you identify not only prescription drugs, but other suspicious substances. Welcome to another episode of the Poking Around Drug Trends Podcast. I am your host, Nick Place, and in this episode of Poking Around, we are going to talk about prescription drug identification. A little bit of a backstory here. When I got ideas together for this podcast, this topic here on identifying prescription drugs was one of the first topics that I wanted to discuss because of the amount of questions that I get as an instructor about identifying tablets or suspected prescription medication. And also, I see this on social media as well. I see frequent posts where somebody, a police officer, comes across a tablet or a suspicious pill, and they try to find out by asking the group, hey, has anybody seen something similar before? So the techniques that I'm going to share with you in this podcast are things that I have learned throughout my career to help me reliably identify prescription drugs, over-the-counter medications, and also illicit drugs. I posted on my website, you can find that at route961training.com. About a year ago, I wrote about this very same topic, and it was one of the more popular posts that we had. So I wanted to, again, use that topic as something to discuss here in this podcast to make an episode out of that topic here on identifying prescription drugs because it is a pretty common thing that comes up. So techniques that we're going to talk about in this episode is using your Google search browser. I'm not a big Google guy, but if you have an iPhone, you can use the Safari app. Using websites like drugs.com or if you prefer WebMD, there are plenty of options out there, but using one of those websites to identify the prescription drug you have in front of you I'll talk about old school methods. So things that I used back in the day, like the Drug ID Bible has pictures of prescription medications in there. I think the downside to using the Drug ID Bible for that purpose is it takes longer than using those websites. The websites are much more efficient, but the Drug ID Bible is a phenomenal resource. Using the Poison Control Center hotline, another old school method there. I see. I still see a lot of old school cops calling the Poison Control Center hotline. I see nurses and doctors using the Poison Control Center hotline. And that Poison Control Center hotline also has their own website where you can identify prescription drugs. So that is a great resource as well. And then we'll do here at the end of the podcast, we'll talk about identifying illicit drugs. So illicit drugs like ecstasy that are pressed into tablet form. I'll talk about ways how you can identify those drugs. And also, too, the trend that's on the horizon is fraudulent medications. So fake drugs made to look like ecstasy or oxycodone, but what they really are is either fentanyl or some designer drug passed off to look like Xanax or oxycodone or another popular prescription medication to trick the user. The ideas and techniques that I'm going to share with you in this episode are things that have worked well for me. However, I would love to hear from you if you have ideas for improvement or suggestions for others that you would like to share. Please email me at pokingaroundpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you have questions about this or other episodes, please email me at that email address again, which is pokingaroundpodcast at gmail.com. 
coming up in a future episode. I'm going to go through the questions that I'd received both here on this podcast and in other formats, along with suggestions that others have passed along for things that they have done that have worked well for them. First, let's start with using a web browser such as Google, though I'm not advocating any business for Google. I also use my iPhone. I use the Safari app web browser on my iPhone to look things up too. I'm just saying you could use a web browser to identify prescription medication. It's a relatively easy and quick way to do so. I use this method when I'm in a hurry or I don't have access to a computer or my phone, and this works well uh, having, say, somebody like a dispatcher look this information up for you. Now, all you really need to do for this method is to enter the shape, color, and the inscription on the medication into the search field, all right? So we're going to use oxycodone as an example. So if you found a white round pill with the inscription written on the pill of Watson 932, okay, the inscription is that little tiny writing that's on the prescription medication, all right, so if you look that up, if you put that in there, now we're going to use pill as a generic term here. If I was writing a police report, I would put in tablet, but if you put in pill into the search feature, it will work just the same. Now you should get results for acetaminophen, 325 milligrams slash oxycodone, 10 milligrams, commonly known as oxycodone, manufactured by Watson pharmaceuticals. You will find several different links to different websites out there that will help you identify the medication that you have. All right. So again, I mentioned I like using the drugs.com feature. There's other websites out there. Poison Control has a prescription pill identification method. WebMD also has one. There's a lot of good ones out there. Again, I prefer drugs.com. That's what I have used in the past. So if you click on that link, you will find a plethora of information, okay? They will have photographs of the medication, so you can compare and contrast with what you have to what the picture on the website identifies the medication as. It gets into treatment, side effects, and other information, okay? Again, it's a great resource. On top of that, it could help you identify illicit drugs, so things like ecstasy. So if you came across a suspected ecstasy tablet that was small and green in color with a shamrock design on it, if you put that into your search bar and you look for that, yes, you will get some links to Etsy and some of these crafty websites, but you will also get some links, too, to websites like drugsdata.com, or excuse me, drugsdata.org, formerly ecstasy.org, and also there's other ones out there, too, like dancesafe.org. So what these websites like dancesafe.org do is if I'm an XTC user, I will send my tablet in to that website. That website will test the tablet to find out what's really inside of it. And then they will post pictures of the tablet on that website along with what the results came back from the lab. So whether it's ecstasy or methamphetamine or some other designer drug that's being put into that tablet, they display that information. So that's a way to do that. Again, users, what they do is they send their tablets in because they want to make sure what the tablet has in it is actually ecstasy and not one of these other designer drugs that they don't feel safe taking. As strange as that sounds. That's the purpose behind things like dancesafe.org. Now, what I would recommend that you do in addition to that, and we'll talk about this later, is to use some other type of confirmation to confirm you have ecstasy. So using something like a presumptive drug pouch or sending it off to a lab for testing. I just said it now. I'm probably going to say it again in this podcast and in other podcasts, the best way to identify a suspicious substance, or in this case, a prescription medication, is to send it off to a laboratory for testing. 
Though the downside of sending things off to a laboratory for testing each and every time is that one, it's costly, and two, it takes up time, okay? I don't think most people understand that um, unless you work in law enforcement, most people have a perception that that law enforcement agencies that we have the CSI chemistry set up, that this we have all these chemists working, you know, 24-7, around the clock, ready to do our bidding. And that is certainly, that is just not the case. It does not work like that. So the laboratory option, I would shy away from saying that you should do it all the time with each and every case because there are other options available in the earlier stages of the investigation to help you identify what you have. I talked a little bit about the drugs.com website. Again, there's others out there where you can quickly and more importantly, reliably identify prescription drugs and other over-the-counter medications, vitamins, etc. And I mentioned too, a little bit earlier, that if you come across a scenario where somebody's trying to pass off a Flintstones vitamin and it's really ecstasy, there are investigative techniques that you can use, such as presumptive drug pouch testing, to help your investigation and show that it is ecstasy and not the Flintstones chewable that this person's trying to spoof you on. Now, law enforcement, they know what I'm talking about in regards to presumptive pouch testing, but those on the civilian side may not understand what I'm talking about. Though most, when I do talks and groups to civilians and drug prevention, social workers, that kind of thing, they understand the pouch testing procedures or what it is, or at least have some basic understanding of it. But if you're unfamiliar with it, when police officers, those in law enforcement, we come across a suspicious substance, there are chemistry manufacturers that make evidence tools for police departments and law enforcement. They make what are called presumptive drug pouches, where what we do is it's a little pouch. It's about one inch by two inches in, in size. What we do is we put a little bit of that suspicious substance inside of that pouch. There are glass ampules inside. We break them from left to right and we notice the color change inside. So for example, for this scenario that I laid out here, if the police officer suspects that the substance is ecstasy and this guy's trying to pull a fast one on him, what he'll do is he'll put a little bit of that tablet inside that pouch, he'll break the ampules from left to right, uh, follow the procedure listed on the instructions, and if it is ecstasy, that officer should notice a deep purple or dark blue color change at the end of that process. So it's a great investigative tool. But here's the debate right now in law enforcement, is there are some people that think we should get away from the drug pouch testing. So I follow, again, social media boards and law enforcement, and when people bring up these drug pouches, you hear or you, you see the hate that comes out on these message threads from people that say to get away from, don't do it. You shouldn't be using pouches anymore, man. It's old school technology. Now, my opinion on this is I'm in the middle. So... Where these people are coming from that are saying we shouldn't use these pouches anymore is that we take an unnecessary risk with using these pouches, especially when testing things like fentanyl and illicit fentanyl analogs that are out there because we put ourselves at a risk for an accidental overdose by testing these pouches and we should send it off to a laboratory for testing. On the other side of that, the argument is if you use proper protection equipment, if you wear, if you're, you know, you should be wearing gloves anyway, but if you, you know, you're wearing gloves, you're wearing goggles, all that protective equipment, and some agencies, some officers are bound by agency policy or by their prosecutor's discretion where, they, where, they, where these where the administrators and the prosecutors are saying you have to test this stuff with a pouch every single time. Again, I fall in the middle with that argument. 
I think there are some times when we shouldn't be testing things because it's obvious there's probable cause. So, for example, if you get sent to a drug overdose and you find a tannish colory or gray in color powdery substance on the table, it takes four doses of Narcan to revive the person. You notice that there's intravenous drug use paraphernalia next to the person. And then in addition to that, you notice the person not only exhibits narcotic analgesic use, but also overdose signs and symptoms. And the person comes out of their drug-induced coma and admits that the substance was what they thought was heroin or fentanyl. Well, in that scenario there, you have probable cause to make an arrest for possession of heroin. You have all those indicators I spoke about earlier. And in that instance there, if it took four doses of Narcan to revive someone from the dead, why the heck do you need to test that substance for the presence of heroin? In that instance, I think you're exposing yourself to too much risk. So for that example there, how I listed it, I think, again, if you need to send, if you need some type of confirmation that the substance is heroin or fentanyl or some other illicit opiate drug, you have probable cause to make an arrest. If you need to, you can send the substance off to a laboratory where they have fancy chemists and great equipment to test that substance for confirmation. But in the moment, if your agency questions you on that, I think, or your prosecutor who questions you, people, you know, like a prosecutor, like I know they're, they're doing the best that they can, but I don't think some of them quite grasp the danger associated with testing those types of substances. So explaining to them the safety hazards with it, that you have probable cause to make an arrest if necessary, and it, it's just a better option to send it to a laboratory for confirmation testing if they need it for court. In that instance, I think you're taking too much of a risk by using a narc pouch or drug pouch to test the substance. However, on the other hand here, with this scenario that we played out where somebody's trying to pull a fast one on the officer and they're trying to pass off ecstasy as a Flintstones vitamin, I think in that instance, it's okay to test that substance, to put a small amount of that, that tablet inside the pouch and test for the presence of ecstasy. So again, my opinion, I'm a little bit in the middle on that. Now, in regards to drug pouch testing for prescription drugs, I'd say no go. And the reason for that is cost. So these pouches cost between 2 to $5 each. I think you're wasting your money by buying presumptive test pouches for drugs like oxycodone and Xanax and the more popular, I think they make one too for barbiturates. These more popular prescription medications that are out there, I think you're wasting your money because you could use those websites that I talked about earlier to identify those prescription medications and those resources are free. So free is good. I would use the free resources out there. But again, in regards to presumptive drug pouch testing, there are times to use them. There are times not to use them use your best discretion. And in regards to testing prescription drugs, I would pass on it unless you think there's something illicit inside the tablet or inside the drug you're investigating, then maybe using those pouches would be a good idea. But if you're pretty certain that it's that what you have is a prescription drug, there are better options I discussed that are free and most importantly, reliable in identifying prescription drugs. Next up, uh, the Poison Control Center hotline. So before the internet became so popular with great websites like drugs.com, this phone number was the go-to, the hotline was the go-to for prescription drug identification on the street. It was staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I think they had some lady chained in the basement of some hospital somewhere um, that was always ready to, to 
answer the phone. Of course, that's a joke. They didn't have anybody chained up. Ha, you know, we can still make jokes in the year 2021. Anyway, the Poison Control Center hotline, 1-800-222-1222. And that's 1-800-222-1222. It sounds like I'm doing a dance with all these tutus in there. Anyway, again, it was a go-to, still is. Where I, I now I used to use this all the time and I got away from it because the just putting something in your search or description of the of the medication in the search browser has evolved. And for me and my money, that is a better feature, though that's not to take away from the great work that they do at the Poison Control Center hotline. And it's kind of user preference whether you want to use your internet search browser or call the Poison Control Center hotline. I think there's advantages to both. It's really, again, it's up to you what you want to do. Next, let's talk about the Drug ID Bible. I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. I think it's a great resource out there. I'll talk about the pluses and minuses of this resource. I mentioned when I went through DRE school in Wisconsin in 2004, this was standard issue. I know some out there would say because of the information on the internet that the Drug ID Bible is not what it used to be, though I would say that be careful what you read on the internet. The folks at the Drug ID Bible verify their sources, so the information in there is pretty reliable. I would, again, steer clear of some things you read on the internet. I'm not saying all things are bad, but the Drug ID Bible, you know those folks are going the extra mile to verify their sources, and they're talking to experienced narcotics investigators to verify the information that they put in their book, mainly on drugs that people will take to get high or substances that people take to get high. So everything from inhalants to illicit drugs, over-the-counter medications, prescription drugs, you name it. If you can get high on it, this it will probably be in the Drug ID Bible. But for purposes of prescription identification, I think if you're looking for a quicker option, the Drug ID Bible may not be what you're looking for. I would use some of these like the drugs.com website or some of these other resources out there to quickly identify what you have. That's not to say that the Drug ID Bible isn't a good resource because it is, but I think you could find what you're looking for quicker with some of these other options. Let me elaborate a little bit on that point just so what I said isn't taken the wrong way. I think that if you use a website like drugs.com that has a prescription pill ID feature on it and you put in things like color, shape, imprint, etc., that information in there, you are going to find what you're looking for much faster than using the quote-unquote old-school method, close quote, of searching through a book to find what you're looking for, if that makes sense. So the Drug ID Bible has plenty of color, glossy photos of various prescription medications, but you have to take the time and search through the book to find what you're looking for. So page by page, you have to take what's in your possession that you found during your investigation and match it up to what you found in the book. It could take some time. Again, I think, especially if you're in a time pinch, it's much more efficient and time-friendly to go on a website, find what you're looking for, rather than go page by page through the Drug ID Bible. But what's nice about the Drug ID Bible, they have a plethora of glossy color pictures of prescription drugs, illicit drugs, you name it, different methods on use, abuse, manufacturing methods, that sort of thing. What I would recommend then is if you find what you're looking for on drugs.com, going back to the Drug ID Bible and maybe reading it a little bit more about abuse methods or ways that people would take oxycodone to get high so that it would help your education. And I'm using oxycodone as an example, but you could find out what different oxycodone medications look like, 
ways people abuse the drug. So obviously orally ingesting it would be uh, a common method, but you could learn about how people inject oxycodone. I haven't received a, a new copy of the new edition of the book. I'll explain why here in a moment. But you could learn how cartels and other illicit drug manufacturers are disguising fentanyl and other designer opiate drugs to look like oxycodone and read about some of those manufacturing methods. And they would probably cite some examples of how experienced drug investigators have come across those fraudulent oxycodone tablets. Another drawback to the Drug ID Bible is it's only available for law enforcement. So if you work outside law enforcement, it could prove difficult, if not impossible, to get a copy of this book. I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing that the publishers don't want the book to get in the hands of the wrong people. Though, again, if you're the way the internet is, if you're looking how to make methamphetamine, for example, there are ways on the internet to find out how. They're not going to rely on the drug ID Bible. But again, I think the publishers have good intentions here to keep the, the book out of the hands of the wrong people. So they keep it to law enforcement only. And then also another drawback is depending on their publishing cycle, it could be a little bit before you get the book. For example, I ordered this book in November of 2020. At the time of this podcast, in mid to late April of 2021, I have yet to get the book. The publishers told me that they're just not on their printing cycle right now. Again, they, they try to do their best to keep up with new editions every couple of years to keep on top of new drug trends, and I've yet to receive this book. So if you're looking for a new copy of it, it, it could be a little bit before you get it. So again, for more timely, more efficient ways to identify prescription drugs, I think there are better options out there than the Drug ID Bible. I also want to share some advice and things that I have learned when I have had issues identifying tablets or capsules or alleged prescription medications or something benign where, again, where some, somebody is trying to pass off an illicit drug as Tylenol when really it's ecstasy or some other illicit drug. So these are things that I have learned. I get these questions a lot as an instructor. I also see on social media threads, people post pictures of something they found on the street and then the usual tag that goes with it is, hey, I found this. Can you tell me what it is? Or is that, has anybody ever seen this before? So the things that I'm going to share with you here are things that have helped me identify things like illicit drugs. So let's let's start with narc pouch testing. Again, I know I, I talked about this earlier, the downside with narc pouch testing and the dangers that are associated with testing illicit drugs like fentanyl and some of the designer opiate drugs that are out there. I get the whole safety concern. I do think this is a legitimate option. It's a good investigative tool to help you ID the suspected illicit drugs. So something like ecstasy, they also, again, they make fentanyl ones. If you think you have a fentanyl tablet, there's nothing saying that you can't do it. But obviously, if you're going to go down that route and use the fentanyl pouch to test a suspected medication, a tablet that's being passed off as oxycodone, when really it's fentanyl, again, I would advise an Uber 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 abundance of caution with doing that if you have probable cause that it's fentanyl i would probably hold off if it was me if it was me i would hold off on testing because it's just not worth the risk uh, and especially to another thing to think about here when using narc pouch testing in these circumstances is 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 the risk testing that substance really worth the reward Okay, so you think about it, most people, I, I know if you read the news today, it seems like the criminal justice system nails the crap out of people on drug charges. In reality, for a simple drug possession charge without a whole lot more, even if there is a whole lot more, you're not seeing people go to prison for 10 years on something like that. 
So, you know, the most somebody's going to get on a simple drug charge, again, without a lot more, um, maybe a little bit of jail time, probably probation or some other stipulation like that. For me, this is my take. It's it's not worth my life testing that for somebody who's going to get uh, two years on probation. Again, I, I would rather just send it off to a laboratory for testing if I have any inkling of it being something like fentanyl because it's just not worth my life to test it. In that circumstance, I would send it off. But again, it's not to say all the time that you have to do that. Another knock that I hear on presumptive drug testing and with narc pouches is that these tests are unreliable. They're unreliable. I see that on social media. I've heard it in person. These pouches are unreliable. They're false. They create false readings. That's not been my experience. I, you know, I understand when defense attorneys make this argument because they're trying to get a better deal for their client. They're trying to get their client off of drug charges, but it's certainly not the case. At least in my opinion, I think that these narc pouches are great investigative tools. They'll help you early on in your investigation. They're great for presumptive drug testing. It's been my experience that most of the time when we have false positives, it's usually the result of operator error. So the officer testing the substance misinterprets the color change. For example, with the methamphetamine MDMA pouch, a positive test with this particular pouch, you should have an immediate dark blue or dark purple color change upon breaking that last ampule. And the operator reads something else other than what I just said. I've had far more false negatives, meaning that there was actually a drug in the substance and the pouch tested inconclusive because there are no negative results. There's either positive or inconclusive. And when I teach narc pouch training, I make this point because I've had instances, especially with cocaine and heroin, where the drug dealer has stepped on their product, meaning that they cut it with an inert product, something like baking soda or powdered sugar, you name it. They're diluting that drug to make more money. And I've had several instances during an investigation where I've put in that suspected cocaine or suspected heroin into the pouch, and I got an inconclusive result only to send the substance off to a laboratory and the crime lab found out that yes, there was cocaine or there was heroin inside that substance, but these narc pouches have a threshold. And if the amount of this suspected drug doesn't meet that threshold, you will get an inconclusive test result. So again, in my experience, there's been quite a few false negatives. The false positives are the result of operator error. I know I'll probably catch some heat. I know not everybody will agree with what I said, but I think the manufacturers would agree with what I'm about to say, but if you follow the test instructions and you follow what the manufacturer told you how to interpret those color results, then that will take care of those false positives. Though, again, the best way to know what is in that substance is to send it off to a laboratory for testing. Another thing to look for, too, is the consistency or the appearance of the medication. The advice I give to people is this. You have all dealt with, at some point in your life, legitimate medication. Either you were, you were prescribed legitimate medication or you came across it during your professional capacity. You know what legitimate looks like. When pharmaceutical companies make medications, they have to follow certain guidelines. They have to follow FDA guidelines. They have machines that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not into the millions of dollars, to make these medications. They're using high-end chemicals and binding agents to make these drugs, these pharmaceutical drugs, and, and pass them off to the consumer because that's, a, that's what they're required to do by law versus the illicit drug manufacturer that's maybe using a handheld pill press 
or a cartel that doesn't have that type of equipment and those type of materials to make a good, at least a tablet that looks good. So think of that when you come across these drugs. So if you come across something with shady imprinting that just doesn't look right, the tablet is very crumbly, it has a powdery type appearance to it, it falls apart easy. I'm not saying that every single time this means that it's something that is illicit, but I'm saying it should raise a red flag. And I know that there's cartels and other drug trafficking organizations that are making tablets to, that look like the real thing. I get that. I'm not. So when I give these suggestions, we talk about some of these topics, I'm not encompassing all because I know that's not the case. But again, just giving some examples here, it's certainly not the case all the time either where the fake tablets look just like the real ones. There are some poor manufacturing methods that could help tip your hand and give you a red flag or a clue that what you're dealing with is fake oxycodone or fake Xanax. To give a little perspective here on the differences in the manufacturing process of tablets, during COVID, I've been taking a vitamin regimen that has included zinc along with vitamin C, fish oil. And you compare, let's just use the zinc tablet. It's a small white tablet. It's very powdery. It obviously, if if you took that tablet and you compared it to a legitimate prescription medication, I would have every confidence you could be able to you would be able to tell the difference and say, okay, this one looks like a legitimate medication and this here looks like something else. And in this instance here, it's obviously this zinc vitamin that I've been taking for uh, to boost my immune system. That zinc and vitamin C helps your immune system, and I've heard the same from some medical professionals. And again, to give you some extra perspective, I'm going to put on the show notes, a link to a YouTube channel that shows and a pill press that you can buy from China. If you watch this video, you'll see how quickly this machine turns out tablets. I recall it's in the neighborhood of $200 for this tablet press. And again, if you really wanted to make fake medication, you could go and buy a dye off the internet, put it in this pill, this, this tablet press, and then you could start turning out fake Xanax or fake oxycodone, etc. But again, that this $200 tablet press from China is subpar, very subpar to the manufacturing process that I described earlier that is done by these prescription manufacturers. And I know that's not the case all the time. I know there are some fraudulent pill manufacturers that are making things, especially from what I gather from things I've read. Cartels are doing a really good job of, of making oxycodone, the fake oxycodone, look like the real thing. I know it's not the case all the time, but in certain instances, I think this visual discrimination test could help you determine what's a real medication versus something that is fake or possibly even to an illicit drug. Another tip that I would give to you for these situations, not just when you're unsure of what you have, but even if you are sure that you have oxycodone or Xanax or whatever prescription medication, I, I think you should be looking for signs of impairment. So if you're a police officer, if you work in law enforcement and you've been to something like A-Ride or DRE, or if you're in the civilian side of things and you've taken a DITEP class, don't be afraid to look for signs of impairment as well and articulate that, why you think this tablet is Xanax or oxycodone or maybe even something that's illicit. I, I'm talking to the law enforcement side of things here, but I think all too often officers, especially those that go to A-Ride, they go to that class, and it's been my perspective, my opinion as an instructor teaching that class for over 10 years, that half the officers who attend that class 
go back and they use that training like they like they were taught and the other half don't for whatever reason so either they're there to take a day off or you know they they went with good intentions and they just didn't use what they were taught again that's just my perspective as an instructor teaching this class over the past 10 years and i think the trap part of the trap that that 50% get them in that don't use this training is they think that they can only use it for instances involving traffic offenses, when that's certainly not the case because alcohol and drug problems persist in other calls for service outside of traffic. So they don't look for that stuff in things like burglaries, thefts, etc. Because let's face it, people who do those other offenses, a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time are doing it to support their drug habit. So my advice here too is look for drug impairment because looking for things like nystagmus or dilated pupils, constricted pupils, that could help you determine what you have in that tablet. Another thing here, um, let me just give an example of what I'm talking about. So let's say you come across an overdose. So let's say you're a civilian that works in an addiction facility or your police officer that comes across a drug overdose and you find, let's say, a bunch of yellow pills either on the counter or on their person, I guess it doesn't matter. You look it up and it's a yellow rectangular tablet with the inscription Xanax 2. You look, use a website like drugs.com and you find that to be Xanax. And let's say for the sake of argument that you have the person, um, that they have pupils that look relatively normal in size and let's say you're able to in this instance take it a step further and they have hgn well you're probably in that instance you're probably dealing with xanax but on the flip side of thing let's say you have fake xanax so this person unknowingly bought some fake xanax tablets and you come across this overdose scene and you see signs and symptoms of narcotic analgesic overdose signs. So they have constricted pupils, they have pale skin, they have agonal breathing, et cetera, et cetera. In that instance there, that might tip your hand if the person, you know, they come around, let's say you narc at them, and they, they come around and say, no, I took that tablet there. They could be telling you the truth. But in that instance, because you saw that, that impairment that was consistent with a narcotic analgesic use and overdose signs, that maybe this instance here, they bought fake Xanax pills that were actually fentanyl. And why I think, again, using these two scenarios and why it's relevant especially with Xanax tablets, is we know with Xanax, we shouldn't see, or we're not expecting to see, unless they took something else, of course, but that wasn't the scenario, though that could play out in real life, of course. But with Xanax, we should see nystagmus because Xanax is a central nervous system depressant, but it's not a narcotic analgesic. So if you see constricted pupils, we would know that we don't, we shouldn't expect to see that with Xanax, but we would expect to see it with a narcotic analgesic. Again, don't be afraid to use that training that you learn in things like A-Ride or DRE, and don't just use it for traffic. It can be used in other instances as well, and I'm not saying I do this all the time, but there have been instances when I've come across medications or suspicious tablets where I look for drug impairment, and that helped me identify, or at least gave me a clue of what I was dealing with. The other thing here where we talk about imprinting, just know that pharmaceutical companies aren't going to engage in trademark infractions. They are not going to put something like the Calvin Klein symbol, the Mitsubishi symbol, Chevy, Ford symbols, that kind of thing, four-leaf clovers. They're not going to put those things on their tablets. The imprinting on these tablets or on the capsules are going to be 
very precise. They're going to look legitimate. It's going to look professional versus the $200 pill press that somebody buys off the internet with the cheap dyes that are made on that you can buy off the internet. Again, if you go do a search on, if just put a simple Google search and you put pill imprint dyes, you will see a wide collection of, of these on the internet to make fraudulent medications. So you go on there, usually those dyes cost about $200. You can have them shipped to your house along with a pill press and you can start making fraudulent medications as a drug dealer. If it doesn't look quite right, that could tip your hand here as a red flag to investigate further. Another thing to do here too, use your BS detector. So BS, obviously we know what BS stands for. I'm trying to keep the explicit rating off of this podcast, but your, your bullcrap detector. Question the person and see what their response is. So if you search somebody and or you're searching their property and you and you find a bunch of pills that are wrapped in a plastic baggie and twist a twisted off plastic baggie another common method i find for illicit drugs transactions are, are these things like oxycodone or um, another popular stimulant medications so so amphetamine based medications that are made for treating things like adhd they're wrapped in the cellophane wrapping of cigarette packages so you'll see it in that kind of consistency. So look for that type of packaging. So twisted off plastic baggies or inside, again, the, the cellophane wrapping of cigarette packages. So if you see that, that should raise a red flag. And then again, ask the question. You should know what normal behavior looks like. So a good colleague of mine, good friend and colleague of mine, Kevin Burke, said in regards to drug impairment is most people by the time they're 15 years old have some idea of adult conversations and how to interact with, with adults. And they start to get a baseline at that point for what's normal and what's not normal. So think of all the adult interactions that you've had since you were 15 years old and things that didn't stand out to you. So if somebody wasn't drunk or high, somebody wasn't giving you a line of crap, that kind of thing. You probably have had thousands, tens of thousands of contacts. If Maybe some of you are pretty old, so maybe hundreds of thousands of contacts with people where they weren't drunk, they weren't high, they weren't giving you a line of crap. And... Things were just, quote-unquote, normal. And compare those normal conversations that you had with people versus the times that you were fed a line of crap. Okay, So if somebody you find one of those cellophane baggies full of pills in somebody's pants and they give you a line like, well, these aren't my pants, right? I mean, I guess in the state of Washington, though, that's a valid defense. So their state, their, uh, the state of Washington, their Supreme Court said the not my pants defense was valid, and they gave a whole reasoning behind it, as crazy as that sounds. But the whole not my pants defense should give you a red flag. Your BS detector should be going off. That, that should raise a red flag. Other common crap stories I've heard from people is are, I bought these last night from a guy I didn't know. Uh, I found it on the street. I mean, who picks up medication that they find on the street? So use your BS detector to pick these stories apart. And if you get something like that, that's probably going to tip your hand in the direction that the substance that you found is illicit. Or maybe it is legit, but they're not supposed to have it. So it would justify a drug charge in that instance. Again, watching behavior, getting stories. I know some people are just afraid to ask, you know, ask the person, what is it? And sometimes lies are just as good as the truth. And if you get fed a line of crap, that could point your investigation in the right direction. And then lastly, what to do when you find something that you think is probably going to be acetaminophen or ibuprofen or aspirin. Some over-the-counter benign medication that really isn't going to get abused. 
these are my suggestions for this is try to find something to compare and contrast what you found. So it's common people drop things all the time. The medication falls out of their purse or out of the container, falls on the floorboard or, or on the bottom of the purse or gets put somewhere. Um, so I mentioned before some of those red flags that get brought up when you find something that's illicit. It's been my experience when people drop these on the bottom of their purse, usually, but not all the time. Usually it's going to be one of these options here. So what I would recommend first, I mean, I would recommend to just asking the person what they think it is and see what type of response you get. If your BS detector isn't going off, they're probably telling you the truth unless they're a fantastic liar, but don't be afraid to ask the person what it is. Also look to see if you can find that bottle that the medication came in. So, so it's not unusual to find the acetaminophen bottle or aspirin bottle with their other possessions. So if you can find that bottle and it still has tablets in it, compare the tablets that aren't worn out, that are in good condition versus the tablet that you found maybe on the floorboard. Compare and contrast to see if they're similar. Also, think again, websites like drugs.com, you can search for different medications that are on there, including over-the-counter medications, and you can compare and contrast with what you see on the screen versus what you have found on the floorboard, etc., wherever the wherever you happen to find this particular tablet. But again, the best way to identify what you have found is to send it off to a laboratory for testing if you have any suspicion that it could be something other than one of these over-the-counter medications. And to wrap up the show, if you have tips or suggestions for people how to identify prescription drugs or illicit drugs, please email me at pokingaroundpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you if you wish to share your suggestions and tips for others. That's how we learn. The great general George S. Patton once said, if everyone's thinking alike, then someone's not thinking I would love to hear that advice from you if you're willing to share it with other people. If you like this show, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast hosting service. My favorite is the Apple Podcast app. Please check us out at route961training.com. We do a lot. We've been doing a lot of presentations online, virtual presentations with the pandemic going on. You can check us out. We post things frequently also on our social media page, and we also do in-person training. So please check us out at route961training.com. I would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. Hopefully, hopefully we'll have you back again. We have some great topics lined up for the future. So once again, thanks for listening. My name is Nick Place, and this has been the Poking Around Drug Trends Podcast.